Thanks, David. So I changed the subject of my talk completely today. Yesterday I planned to talk about work that we did um, showing that specific warnings are paid attention to while general warnings aren't. This kind of followed on from what we were talking about yesterday. Um, but after the things that we've been talking about today, I thought I'd talk about reciprocity, transparency and control, which is an angle on a paper that I'm giving at Weiss in a couple of weeks' time about which a number of people have talked. Um, basically, there are two views of money and power. On the left coast, in the Bay Area, people say that money and power are all about network effects, which help you create a platform to which everybody else adds value. And the Washington DC view is that power is about a state's capacity to tax and build aircraft carriers. And the curious thing we found out is that in DC, almost nobody talks about network effects. Most scholars of government have never heard the term. Now, one of the things that the Snowden papers will teach us is that this is changing, because in intelligence, we're seeing stronger and stronger network effects. For example, in the 1980s, India bought a lot of its warplanes from Russia because they were cheaper. Uh, but nowadays, we learn that India um, has got its intelligence sharing agreement with the NSA rather than with the FSB because the NSA has the bigger network. The world is becoming less like you know, Britain versus France in the early 19th century and a little bit more like Microsoft versus Apple. And what we also learn from the Snowden papers is that the five eyes is more like 35 eyes or even more nowadays when you look at all the um, sharing uh, agreements and subsidiary sharing agreements. Now, just to recap, for those who are not in the computer industry, there are three things tend to make firms in our trade monopolistic. You've got network effects, which means you've got increasing returns to scale. You've got low marginal costs, and you've got technical lock-in. Each of these tends to make dominant firm market structures more likely, and together they make them much more likely. That's why we get IBMs, Microsofts, Googles, Facebooks, etc., etc., etc. And they also explain privacy and um, safety. Right. For oh, sorry. Sorry, equipment failure. Okay, so. So, so how the world is changing is that Snowden tells us that network effects matter in intelligence. And we all, those of us who are in this industry know that network effects are really, really important because they give us pervasive monopolies. Now, they also explain security failures, which is well known in our community, because in a market race, you've got to appeal to complementers such as app writers, as well as to your users. And once you have won the race, uh, you lock everything down so that you can extract rents. And in one market after another, mainframes, PCs, routers, phones, social network systems, you lock people in first, you build the big network, you see to it that everybody joins Facebook because that's where all their friends are, you see to it that everybody uses Microsoft PCs because that's what all the apps are for, and once you have built this dominant position, you lock it down. So far, so good. Isn't it time we start talking about network economics of surveillance? And in my wise paper, in two weeks' time, we do this. And this has got a number of aspects to it. Firstly, the monopolistic nature of information <coughs> industries means that you have got the Googles, Microsofts, Facebooks, who can be tapped on the shoulder by the FBI with warrants. But it also means that you have got large, powerful networking companies, Level 3, BT, and so on, who can be tapped on the shoulder for things to be added to their cables. The point is that this isn't all. That network effects mean that countries will cluster as well, that you get India sharing information with America rather than with um, Russia or China. And we also see the things that uh, Masashi was talking about earlier, whereby common, common technical platforms 
end up entangling Western firms with some very, very unpleasant governments indeed, <laughs> leading to some uh, rather difficult moral questions about things like export control. So the, in the international relations community is about clueless about this. They're divided between realists who see the world as a zero-sum game and the idealists and liberals like Kant who say that it's all about building international institutions to mitigate the effects of a prisoner's dilemma. Now, if network effects start to matter in international relations, then this may change the balance of power between the liberals and the realists in the world's capitals. And that's perhaps an opportunity for our industry to engage better with governments. So far, that's the uh, piece for readers of foreign affairs or the WISE um, community. Intelligence network governance is something that interestingly follows on from this and leads us on to ethics. Because we find that when they, again from the Snowden papers, that when the spooks sat down and decided who could look at the stuff of other people's citizens, it was only Canada put its hand up and said, sorry, you have to minimize data on Canadian citizens because our law requires that uh, personal data in Canada is classified. NSA was quite happy for GCHQ to read Americans' medical records, and of course GCHQ returns the favor um, in uh, the same way. But the interesting thing is that a local prohibition, Canadian prohibition on sharing personal medical information with outsiders, actually managed to carry its way through into a network. Law enforcement network governance is interesting because there you've got various models from Interpol through mutual legal assistance treaties. And this is very slow and cautious and clunky. And here we see the compliance avoidance that Angela and others have been talking about over the last couple of days. Since the official channels don't work well, people go to enormous efforts to create good personal links of interpersonal trust between investigators in different countries who can phone each other up and get favors done. Is that good or is that bad? Now here's the rub. Networks tend to merge. The internet absorbed all other networks. And we're seeing that intelligence and law enforcement networks are flowing together everywhere. PRISM is an FBI product rather than an NSA product. And here in the UK, all police wire attacks are done by NTAC, which is a service window at GCHQ. This, again, is what you would expect from the underlying economics. So here's the thing that I thought we should talk about following um, the discussion earlier on um, government becoming ambient. How does this work at the local government level? I used to chair the University Security Committee, and I was the academic sort of accountable for the 24 or so patrollers that we have in Cambridge to go around and respond to alarms. And we've got a shared network of CCTV and a shared radio network for patrollers, and this is shared um, with local policemen, with local government, with Marks and Spencer, with um, you know, all the big stores downtown, they all use the same radio channel and they all cooperate very, very well. So if we're going to get ambient local government, then how is it going to be governed? Is it going to be run out of Fort Meade? Or is it going to be run by a committee of people, one from the university, one from Marks and Spencer's, one from the Cambridgeshire Constabulary? Nobody seems to be thinking about this. There are also issues of access. If you're a private individual who's accused of a crime, or you're in a payment dispute with a bank, you've got the devil's own job getting CCTV footage. But of course, the bank has no such difficulty since it has a seat at the table. Here are the governance issues. Nobody's starting to think about them yet. 
and I'm grateful to various people for prodding me to think about this over the last couple of days. We've also got a number of principles in the EU apart from human rights. Um, there's subsidiarity, which says that decisions are supposed to be taken at the appropriate level. The Union for copyright law, member states for national taxation, and then there's county, city, parish, and so on. We're already getting difficulty, as the Google Spain case shows, with interactions between network reality on the one hand and the existence of states on the other hand. So what's the reality going to be for the City of London? Well, maybe they'll manage to hack it because they've got the Metropolitan Police, which is all pretty well an independent player among the intelligence agencies. What about the City of Cambridge? What about the computer lab? Now, one of the things that we discussed over lunch uh, yesterday was whether it would be possible for the UK to say, as we don't approve of the death penalty, we will not allow any packets that are harvested from GCHQ Bud in, in Cornwall and then passed on to the NSA's partners in Saudi Arabia, for example, to be used as evidence in a trial that might result in an execution. Can this, or should this, be extended to a lower level? If information is going to be collected in universities, then should a university have some control over what's done with it? Now, 20 years ago, we had a project of ubiquitous computing here at the Computer Lab where by everybody who volunteered got a badge to wear, which signaled where you were by infrared, and it gave you complete controllability over privacy, because if you wanted to vanish, you took the badge off, you put it face down on the desk, and then you vanished, and by social convention, that meant that you were not to be disturbed. So with a primitive technology, we had an easy user interface which enabled people to control access to their information. How do you extend that to the modern world? Because the information that is being collected is being collected through all sorts of channels. It's being collected through PRISM. Google has a new project called Tango, which will use your mobile phone to take photographs of all sorts of stuff as we move around and we'll create a model of the spaces that you move in so that you only really need one Tango user in any group such as this and everybody's under surveillance. And then does that information through PRISM feed into NSA systems and then does it feed into a religious court in Riyadh? So here's the challenge. People start to worry that neither anonymization nor transparency and consent work well anymore. And the White House's big data report of two weeks ago agrees. So let's turn the problem around. What would a user interface for local privacy control look like? We've got work, one worked example in the form of the active badge that you put face down in order to vanish. Could you have a digital equivalent of what David mentioned, um, Plato's Ring of Gerges, which when you put it on causes you to vanish so that you can go and do what you want? Is that feasible? Well, let's forget for now about what's feasible. Let's try and dream. What would the user interface for local privacy control look like? Suppose you had the power to bid the large companies to write their software as you wished. How would you reimagine the world so that some kind of control, local control, whether at the personal level or at the institutional level of privacy, could be recreated? 